Good evening. This is Patrick Donahue. Appreciate you listening every week at this same time to Bible Crossfire. We hope you call in. Proverbs fourteen twelve says there's a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. So just because something seems right, even religiously, that doesn't necessarily make it right. What makes it right? If you find it in the scriptures, that's God's word. If you're going by what seems right to you, you're going by man, your own thing. What's in your own mind? If you go by what God's word says, you're submitting to God. Last week, while we were waiting on our first call, we were talking about how many different interpretations of the Bible there are. And there are many. I mean, each different church out there, and there are hundreds of them, probably represents a different interpretation. Some people assume that since there's many different interpretations of the Bible, that the Bible must be hard to understand. But I don't think that's really why there are so many different interpretations. I think it has more to do with people don't have a love for the truth. You can read that phrase in 2 Thessalonians 2.10. People don't have a love for the truth. And since they don't have a love for the truth, it's more about what seems right to them instead of what God says is right. Then they come up with different interpretations of the Bible. It's not because the Bible's hard to understand. It's because they don't have a proper love for the truth. One of the biggest things that, that I think throws people off is sometimes people have ulterior motives. They understand what the truth is, but they don't accept the truth because they have ulterior motives. Maybe they just, maybe as we pointed out last time, a homosexual uh, thinks the Bible teaches that homosexuality is right. When a passage like 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10 says that homosexuals and sodomites will not inherit the kingdom of God, that's not hard to understand. But they come up with an interpretation of the Bible to say that homosexuality is right because they want to practice what they want to practice. And I've had a number of debates with gay public debates with gay preachers. And to me, that's what they were doing. They didn't give any verses that proved that homosexuality is right. They couldn't do that. The Bible condemns homosexuality over and over and over again, Old Testament and New. But what they did is they had these ulterior motives. They want to practice quote, same sex, so they manipulate the passages to justify themselves. Perhaps the most common ulterior motive is pointed out by 1 Timothy 6, verse 10. It says, for the love of money is the root of all evil. I I don't think there's ever been a truer statement said than that. The love of money is the root of all evil. And so we have people who are supported to preach the gospel, which the Bible authorizes, but many times that creates a temptation because the love of money is the root of all evil. For example, I read in Romans 16, verses 17 and 18, Paul said, Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned and avoid them. For they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, and by good words and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the simple. So we have people who are teaching But they're causing divisions and offenses by teaching error because they're trying to serve their own belly. They're causing problems because they're preaching what people want to hear, what will allow people to stay in their sins. Like we've been talking about divorce and remarriage. Many preachers now, 95% of the churches have now compromised. They're going to preach uh, uh, that it's okay to stay in second and third marriages. Because that's what the people want to hear. And so they can preach for the big churches, these preachers, and get a lot of money because they're preaching what wants to be heard. It's because it's not because the Bible's not clear on this, on divorce and remarriage. It's because the preachers 
We want to preach what the people want to hear. They want to get a big salary. And the people want to stay in these kind of marriages. If you have a Bible question or comment, the number to call is 877-655-6755. 877-655-6755. So let's talk about this point on divorce and remarriage. And that, that sometimes we have different interpretations of the Bible. Not because the Bible's hard to understand, but because what the Bible clearly and plainly says interferes with how we want to live. I got a quote here on my outline from Sir Julian Huxley, who was one of the world's leading evolutionists. And he said this, I suppose the reason we leaped at the origin of species was because the idea of God interfered with our sexual mores or practices. So here we have this book, Charles Darwin's famous book, where he introduces the theory of evolution and it shapes the theory even today. And Huxley says we leaped at that because the idea of God interfered with our sexual practices. In other words, as long as they believe a God created everything, you have to explain how the universe got here, the earth and the universe. If we believe God did it, then we're responsible to God. That God says one woman, one man for one woman for life. They didn't like that. They wanted to have relations, sexual relations with more than one woman. So when they had a a way to figure out a way that the universe could have created, been created without God and say there is no God. Now, we don't have a God to be responsible to, and we can have sex with as many women as we want to. So, so this is not believing this. is not because the Bible is hard to understand. It's because people don't want to do what the Bible says. And what I'm talking about now is what I just mentioned a while ago is divorce and remarriage. Let's read the passage on that. Matthew 19, 9, Jesus said, Whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. And whoso marrieth her, which is put away, doth commit adultery. Now, I don't think that's that hard to understand. I study with a number of people. When I read them that, I don't remember any of them. Maybe there were a few, but I don't really remember anybody that couldn't understand what they, that says. They all knew what it says. I've been married to Carol for 35 years. If Carol were to cheat on me sexually, then I would have the right to divorce her for that reason. And God would approve of that. And then if I remarried, God would approve of that. But if she doesn't cheat on me sexually, then I can't divorce her for any other reason. Even if she commits a sin, like maybe she gets drunk every Saturday night. That's a sin. She's going to be held accountable for that. But I can't divorce her for that because this verse says, except for fornication. Now, that's not hard to understand. If I divorce her for incompatibility, which is the most common cause of divorce in Alabama, God does not approve of the divorce because it's not for fornication. And if I remarry, Jesus calls that adultery. Now, if you go back, say, 120 years ago, every church agreed with that. They, they said, look, if you divorce and you remarry in the first divorce, you didn't do it for fornication. That remarriage, that second marriage is adultery. And if you want to be forgiven for that adultery, if you want to be considered a, a member, a faithful member of our congregation, you're going to have to get out of that marriage. You can't just continue in the adultery. That's not repenting. Of it. You can't say you're sorry for the adultery, God. But, oh, by the way, I plan to continue in it. Not any more than. Say two gay men can say they're sorry, but plan on staying in their sexual relationship. That doesn't work. That's not true repentance. Every church, if you go back 120 years ago, or probably even less than that, you uh, stood for the truth on that, that if you're in this second or third marriage that's a, defined as adulterous by Matthew 19.9 and other passages, you're going to have to get out of that marriage to be pleasing to God. Now, I would say less than 5% of the churches out there stand for the truth on this. It's not because the Bible's hard to understand. There's nothing hard to understand about Matthew 19.9. But it's like the evolutionist. They don't want to believe in God because they want to have sexual freedom. And most denominations 
don't believe what Matthew 19, 9 clearly and plainly says because they want to have more than one wife, not at a time. I'm not talking about polygamy, but they want to be able to divorce their wife and marry another, even though Jesus calls it adultery. They want to be able to stay in it, and they want to have a preacher that's going to preach that to them. Believing the truth on, on, on divorce and remarriage is not that really hard to understand from a biblical standpoint. It's just people want to have the freedom to have sex with have marriage with ever, whichever woman they want to. They don't want to necessarily stay in their original marriage like God requires. If you have a Bible question or comment, the number to call is 877-655-6755. The lines are wide open right now. The number to call, if you want to ask a question, a Bible question, or make a Bible comment, the number to call is 877-655-6755. Another related thing is that... Um, People sometimes have different interpretations of the Bible, not because the Bible's hard to understand, but because what the Bible clearly says contradicts what we wish the truth would be. I, I call that wishful thinking. Of course, a lot of that expression's been around a long time. I think we all know what we mean by wishful thinking. And I think the perfect example of this is the once saved, always saved position. The, the Baptist church, for example, say it's impossible for a Christian to fall from grace. But but Galatians 5 4 says Christ has become of no effect unto you. Whosoever of you are just whosoever of you are justified by the law, you are fallen from grace. So a number of churches say it's impossible to fall from grace. Paul said, God says that these people in Galatians 5 had fallen from grace because they were trying to be justified. They were trying to bind parts of the Old Testament law. They had fallen from grace. You can't fall from a tree unless you're in the tree first. This verse is saying that some of these people, some of these Christians had fallen from grace. That means they were in grace. They were a Christian. They were saved. They fell from grace. They lost their salvation. Now, that's pretty clear. Some churches say you can't fall from grace. Paul said, talking to some of the Christians in Galatia, you are fallen from grace. That's pretty clear you can fall from grace. If Paul's telling some people that they had fallen from grace, you are fallen from grace. It's not hard to understand. Why do people come up with different interpretations of the Bible? It's not because it's hard to understand. It's because they don't have a love for the truth. What the Bible clearly says in dozens and dozens of passages, like Galatians 5, 4, that you can fall from grace, that's it's easy to understand, but they don't want that to be the truth because they want to become a Christian in the way they think they're supposed to and then live any old way they want to and still be saved. They want it to be true, this wishful thinking, so they believe that it's true. Gary from Michigan. Go ahead with your Bible question or comment, please. I've got a question. Uh, I came to Christ in 2010, about two weeks before I got incarcerated uh, unjustly. Um, but so I was in there for two and a half years, and daily in my Bible I didn't have much Gary, Gary, I'm not sure why, yeah. but you're not coming through loud and clear. I can't really understand you very well. Is there something you can do to come in more loud and clear? That is possible. Is this any better? Yeah, it sounds better, I think. Okay. So, 2010, I came to Christ, uh, and he told me I was going to jail, and I did. Uh, on charges I wasn't guilty of, but I spent two and a half years fighting this. I didn't have an upbringing in church, um, and daily I read, I, I wound up leading a Bible study, um, and I was 
full of the Holy Spirit, and I knew it. Uh, seeing some things that, that you just can't explain away. And then I got out uh, of jail and I slowly diminished and just kind of fell away. And I've been stuck in this kind of black cloud because of some of the things that I've done of going back. Let me read you a passage. It sounds like your 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 description of what you did is described by Second Peter two verse twenty. He says, "For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ." Now, pollutions here is not talking about smog. The footnote says sin. The newer translations say corruptions of the world. Here's a person that's escaped the sins of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He's a Christian. You said you had become a Christian, right, Gary? Meaning you had escaped the sins of the world through the knowledge of Christ. But then it says, if that happens and they're again entangled therein, meaning they're entangled back into the sins of the world and overcome, the latter end is worse with them than the beginning. In other words, they're worse off than if they never become a Christian to begin with. To become a Christian, to make that commitment that you're going to change your life in regard to sin. After all, Peter said, repent and be baptized for the remission of sins to believers in Acts 2.38. So before you're baptized to get the forgiveness of all your sins, you repent. You commit to changing your life in regard to sin. Once you're baptized, God's going to expect you to follow through on that commitment. If you don't follow through on that commitment, he's saying here in verse 20, you're worse off than if you'd never become a Christian to begin with. You were saved. You'd escaped the sins of the world through Christ, but now you're lost. Does that describe what you're talking about, Gary? Oh, no, there is. There is. Let me read you James chapter 5, 19 and 20. It's another passage I like to, to read that proves once saved, always saved. There's dozens of them that proves once saved, always saved is false. I might have said that wrong. But most of them show that it's you, you can repent and come back. Here's James 5, 19 and 20. Brethren, talking to Christians, if any of you do err from the truth, New King James says, wonder from the truth. And one converting... Let him know that he which converteth the sinner from the air of his way shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. So here's a, a Christian that wanders from the truth. He was in the truth. He wandered away from the truth. Our job is to try to convert him back. If we can convert him back, we save his soul from death. Not physical death, his soul from death, spiritual death. So, but if he refuses to be converted back, that's saying his soul will die, he'll be lost. But if he if he, if he is converted back, if he repents of his sins, he'll be forgiven. He's back in God's good graces, you might say. You see that from James 5, 19 and 20, Gary? Yes. I mean, that's pretty clear. Not only is it proved conclusively that you can fall from grace and lose your salvation as a Christian. You can, as a brother in Christ, you can err from the truth and your soul can die. But it also proves, though, that if you're converted back, if you come back to the Lord, he'll forgive you. You remember the story of the prodigal son? In Luke chapter 15, we have a story yeah, illustrating that. Here's the prodigal son that left his father, took his inheritance, went off in a far country, wasted, spent all his living, a riotous living. He represents, the father in that story represents God. The prodigal son represents somebody who's left the faith, a Christian that leaves the faith. Well, he can come back. He came back and his father forgave him. And here that represents God. So you can come back. You can lose, you can leave the Father. Second Chronicles 15, 2 says, if you're talking about God, if you forsake him, he will forsake you. 
The Lord is with you while you be with him. If you forsake God, he'll forsake you. But if you come back like the prodigal son, like we read about in James 5, then you're going to be perfectly fine again. You can be forgiven. Does that make sense, Gary? Yes, sir. Let me read you another passage. This is Jesus speaking in Revelation 3, 5. It says, He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Do you know what the book of life refers to, uh, Gary? It's in the Bible, I don't know, eight or ten times, uh, a bunch of times in the Old Testament, a bunch of times in the New. Do you know what the book of life refers to, Gary? Those that inherit eternal life. Yeah, it's like the list, God's list of the names of all the saved people. So if your name's in the book of life, that means you've been saved, you become a Christian. This says, Jesus says, if you overcome, talking about temptation, persecution, if you overcome, he'll not blot your name out. Which would imply if you don't overcome temptation as a Christian, he will blot your name out. You were in the book of life, saved. Now he blotted your name out because you didn't overcome temptation. Now you're lost. I mean, that's pretty clear and it's conclusive. A lot of people don't believe that, but that's not because this verse is hard to understand. It's because they want to live the way they want to live. Like we were talking about uh, uh, second marriages, second and third marriages, divorce and remarriage. They want to be able to divorce their wives, marry another woman. Jesus calls that adultery. They don't care. Their preacher doesn't care. They want to say they're saved anyway, even though in their second or third marriage and living in adultery. They want that to be true, so they believe it. It's not because this verse is hard to understand. Gary? Any follow-up? Thank you. Any follow-up? Thank you for your call, Gary, okay? Uh, Yeah, uh, thank you. All right, bye. If you have a Bible question or comment, give us a call at 877-655-6755. Another reason uh, people come up with different interpretations of the Bible, and it's not because the Bible's hard to understand, it's because they don't take into consideration all passages on the subject. For example, the Catholics believe this doctrine called transubstantiation. For example, they believe that when the priest gives thanks for the bread, it literally changes to the body of Christ. And when he gives thanks for the cup, the fruit of the vine, it literally changes to Jesus' blood. Now, if, if all you did was take Matthew 26, 26, 27, and 28, you might come to that conclusion. It says he took the cup, it's talking about Jesus, and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it, for this is the blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. So after he gives thanks for this fruit of the vine, he calls it blood. So you might think, well, it must have changed literally to his blood. That's what, what you might think if that's the only passage you had. But if you just read the next verse, he says this. Jesus says, but I say to you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So he calls it blood, yes, in verse 28, but then he calls it fruit of the vine in verse 29. Did it change from fruit of the vine to blood and then immediately back to fruit of the vine? Obviously not. That's not what he's saying. He's using a metaphor here. Like John 10, verse 9, Jesus says, I am the door. Well, he's not saying he's a rectangular piece of wood with three metal hinges. He's not saying that, but he's saying, I am the door in the sense that if you want to get to the Father, if you want to get to heaven, you have to come through me. And that's what's going on in Matthew 28. He's not saying when he says, this is my blood, he's not saying it changed literally to Jesus's blood. He's saying this fruit of the vine represents his blood represents his blood. 
And so as we eat that little piece of bread, drink the fruit of the vine, when we're partaking of the Lord's Supper, the communion, then we're remember this because it reminds us of the body and blood of Christ. We're remembering his death and being thankful for it. So the, the problem with the Catholics make there is they're not taking under consideration all the passages on the subject. They, you know, they look at Matthew 20, 26, 27 and 28. They don't look at the next verse that would prove what they're thinking about those two verses is incorrect. Now, I think a lot of people do the same thing on the doctrine of faith alone or faith only. If you were to look at John 3, 16, all by itself, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You might think all you had to do to be saved was believe in Christ because that's all that verse says. Now, it doesn't say faith only, but the only thing it mentions is faith. You might think, well, all you got to do is believe if that's the only verse we had. But if you look at other verses, you see that's not the correct understanding. James 2.24 says, you see then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only. So all you got to do is turn to James 2.24 and you see for 100% sure salvation is not by faith only. He says you're justified by works and not by faith only. Now, the Methodist Creed book says justification by faith only is the most wholesome doctrine and very full of comfort. That's what they say, but it directly contradicts this verse. This verse is not hard to understand. People want to believe salvation is by faith only because they don't want to have to be responsible to obey, to trust and obey. Mark 16, 16 says, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. So you have to trust and obey. You have to believe and obey. People don't want to believe that because they want to live a life in disobedience to God and still be saved. They don't have a love for the truth. That's why they come up with a different understanding of the Bible. And then, well, let me mention the number again. If you have a Bible question or comment, I want you to give me a call, 877-655-6755. I say we have two or three minutes left on the program. So if you want to call, make it quick. Sometimes people come up with different understandings of the Bible because they're more loyal to their system of interpretation than they are what the Bible actually says. For example, the Calvinists have a system of of, of of theology, the the acrostic to describe the five points of Calvinism is TULIP. L stands for limited atonement. The Calvinists will agree that if any one of those five points fall, then the whole system falls. Well, limited atonement, that, they say that means Jesus only died for a few, the saved, the elect, not for everybody. But let me read you just one text here. Hebrews 2, 9 says that by the grace of God, Jesus, by, that he, by the grace of God, should take death for every man. Talking about Jesus. Let me read it again. He, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. That's not hard to understand. Obviously, Jesus died for every man. Well, why can't the Calvinists say that? Why can't they just accept the plain meaning of that verse? Because they've already said if one point of Calvinism falls, the whole thing falls, and that's their limited atonement falls by this. They say Jesus didn't die for every man. This verse said that he did. So they won't accept the plain meaning of this verse because it would mean their whole system of theology is wrong. So they're more loyal to their system of theology than what the Bible actually says. Well, of course, we're going to have many different interpretations of the Bible. It's not because the Bible's hard to understand. There's nothing hard to understand about Hebrews 2, 9 or Mark 16, 16 or James 2, 24 or, or uh, Matthew 19, 9 or Galatians 5, 4. They're not hard to understand. The reason people don't believe them is because they don't have a love for the truth. They want to live the way they want to live. And so they won't believe what the Bible plainly says. Mark Twain has this famous quote. He says, it's pretty funny. 
it ain't those parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bother me. It is the parts that I do understand. The problem that Mr. Twain is pointing out, Samuel Clemens, is not that the Bible's hard to understand, and that causes all our problems. The problem is what we do understand is hard to live by. That's the problem. Matthew 19, 9, it's not hard to live by. Saying you can't divorce except for fornication, that's not hard to understand. It's hard to live by for some people, sure. People, their eyes, they have closed, Matthew 13, 15 says. So the reason we have so many different interpretations of the Bible, not because the Bible's hard to understand, but it's pe because people don't have a love for the truth, and they'll manipulate the Bible so they can live the way they want to. That's what, the, in my gay debates, that's what the gay preachers did. They would manipulate passages and ignore the clear teaching of the Bible so they could have their gay partners. If you would like a free one-hour phone Bible study with me sometime at your convenience, call or text me at 256-682-9753. Free Bible study over the phone at your convenience, 256-682-9753. Call or text me.